Well, please turn with me this evening uh, to Matthew's Gospel and turning uh, to Matthew chapter 6. Last uh, Sunday we were looking and we were beginning a series through the Lord's Prayer and uh, we want to continue to look at the Lord's Prayer this evening. And so we are going to read it in its context uh, from Matthew 6 of verse 5 and then reading down to verse uh, 13 and we'll uh, be looking at verse 10. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and to pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As mentioned, we have been looking at uh, the topic of prayer. And we have been looking at uh, uh, the idea of prayer uh, by looking at what is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. And this prayer of Jesus is given to us both in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel. And we want to be looking at how uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples about prayer together. But one thing that we highlighted last time is, is that in Luke's Gospel, one of the uh, things that stands out is the occasion in which Jesus taught this prayer to his disciples. You remember that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. Uh, and there was a reason for that, because the disciples are learners. Uh, they come to learn. But they also knew that they had something to learn from Jesus about prayer. Uh, that Jesus was frequently in prayer, we highlighted. But more than that, Jesus enjoyed an intimacy uh, with God in prayer. That when Jesus prayed, he had a confidence that was unique and that stood apart from others. And that was summarized even in the way that Jesus addressed God in prayer. That he addressed uh, his father as father, that he addressed him as heavenly father. And we highlighted how in the Old Testament, the Old Testament itself teaches us that God is like a father who pities his children. That concept is there, but we don't see people having the confidence to actually address God on those terms. While God is described as pitying his children, uh, oftentimes people would address the Lord highlighting his mightiness, his sovereignty, his control, uh, his lordship, 
And all of those things are good and true. But Jesus was teaching his disciples that when they pray, they are to pray by the language of Father. That's, that's his instruction to his disciples. And that's significant because Jesus is teaching his followers that the one that they are addressing is one who has authority over them, but also who cares for them. Both of those elements are captured in the language of Father. But we highlighted something else in Luke's Gospel, because when Jesus was saying that, just before he taught them about the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said something else to his disciples. He said, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son reveals him. So when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, our Father who art in heaven, Jesus is teaching his disciples that they are to come before God on the basis of what they know about God through Jesus. It's what they have come to know of God through the Son that allows them to now address God as their Father. So the language of Father denotes confidence, intimacy, trust, love, and care. But it's also capturing something of the role of Christ that, that the Lord Jesus came into this world to reveal the Father. And it's only when we come to know Christ that we enjoy that intimacy of knowing God. It wasn't that long ago, in previous centuries, there was something called liberalism, theological liberalism uh, in many churches. And some of the teachings that were being circulated were teachings like the universal fatherhood of God. That there are many ways uh, to live. There are many religions that are uh, all acceptable and equal. That we all believe in the same God. And that all religions are on a common setting, a common footing. But what we realize when Jesus is using this language of Father, he is denoting that on the basis of what is revealed in and through him. And so no, not all religions are the same. That what is denoted by the fatherhood of God is something that is enjoyed on the basis of what Christ has come to reveal. And so it is something that is unique to those who are children of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this evening, as we come back to looking at the Lord's Prayer, uh, we wanted uh, to look at the second petition. We looked last time at the first petition, Hallowed Be Your Name, that God's name, that God's character is to be given great reverence, that we are to be concerned about the glory of God. This evening, we want to think about the kingdom of God in this second petition. And we want to see that because God's reign is gracious, our desire should be for God's kingdom to come. We want to think about verse 10 here in three thoughts. We want to think about the concept of the kingdom of God. Then we want to think about the coming of the kingdom of God. And then finally, we want to think about the consummation of the kingdom of God. First, we have the concept of the kingdom of God. What is a kingdom? A kingdom is probably not something that we're as familiar with as people in previous centuries. But even in Canada, we still have a king, Charles. Uh, we don't see uh, the same uh, governance of a king as in previous centuries, but the language is still a carryover from the past. 
What is a kingdom? A kingdom refers to a realm or to a, a people who were governed by a particular ruler or by a particular king. Uh, and so a kingdom refers to those who are under the governance of that ruler. The scriptures teach us that God is a king, that he rules over all of creation, that all of creation is under his governance. As Psalm 47, for instance, says that God is, a most, is the Lord most high. He is a great king over all the earth. Psalm 103, which we just sang, says the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. When we talk about God reigning like that over all of creation, oftentimes that language is described as God's kingdom of power. It's universal. It's over all of creation. It's absolute and it's unending. But when Jesus talks about the kingdom here, he's thinking about something different. And you see that because of the language that he uses. He's asking for something to be realized. Your kingdom come. He's asking for some development uh, to uh, take shape, to take form. And so when Jesus talks about your kingdom come, He's not simply thinking about the kingdom of God's power, we might say, which is absolute over all of creation. He governs all things. But he is thinking about the rule or the reign of God's grace in the lives of sinners. That, that God's governance would be realized in the lives of those who are under a different kingdom who are living in slavery to sin, those who are in bondage in the kingdom of darkness. The Bible tells us that our first parents sinned against God. When Adam and Eve sinned, they not only rebelled against God, but they became corrupted by sin, enslaved to it. But also they aligned themselves with a spirit of animosity towards God's kingdom. Something that the scriptures describe as being under the kingdom of darkness. That they take on an attitude that is mirroring and sharing Satan's attitude himself. And so when scripture describes sin, it's not simply an arbitrary action, but rather it is a whole disposition now towards God an animosity towards God, a corruption of the will, uh, an alignment with Satan's attitude himself. And so we see this language actually emerge in scripture where by nature now we are born into a world where we are living in the domain of darkness, where we are living in the kingdom under the prince of the power of the air. And so when a scripture highlights all of this, it also presses the point that God is a God who will rescue people even from their own choices, from their own slavery, from their own corruption. And he would set them free from those sins. Because the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin, the kingdom of Satan, is a kingdom that is doomed both to destruction and to death. It is self-defeating and self-destructive. Because it takes things, even good things, 
and then looks to them to ultimately to provide for them and to satisfy them in a way that they cannot. It is built on a foundation that will not hold. But more than that, it is self-defeating and destructive because it is opposed to God's will being realized. And so setting itself up against God, it is doomed to being defeated. But not only is it self-destructive and uh, defeating, but it is also one that leads inevitably to death. Because to remove oneself, to, to separate oneself from God, is to separate oneself from the source of life and blessing. And so if we're living our lives opposed to God, the end of that path is ultimately to be separated from life itself, eternally. And so here uh, in the Bible, the Bible actually describes this this promise of God that he would be a God who would come and rescue us from our sins. If you turn, for instance, to the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah talks about God's mercy being realized, but he describes the mercy of God in this way, that God will rule over them. That God's, the promise that is being offered to people is, is that God will rule over them. He will show his care towards those who have been enslaved by sin. He will set them free who were living in bondage to sin. He will free them from an evil Lord, ultimately to bring them under a state of blessing. And so the, the hope of the good news in the Old Testament could be described as God realizing his care in the lives of sinners. And so this language, this concept of a kingdom all has the idea that wouldn't it be good if we had someone caring for us? Someone who could set things right. Someone who could protect us and deliver us from the problems within and the problems around. And the Old Testament says God will do that. God will set up that kingdom. God will be that king. And so you start to see that being pictured in the Old Testament. You see a nation formed. You see God appointing a servant, David, and David's descendants, that they are to be a king over God's people, realizing God's will and bringing righteousness to be established. You look at the prophets. We looked at this morning, Daniel. You think about Daniel. Daniel speaks about a universal kingdom. He says that there was one who was like the, a son of man who appears before the ancient of days, and to him is given a kingdom. And what is characteristic of that kingdom? It's universal and it's everlasting. A kingdom that has no end and a kingdom over all the earth. And so the Old Testament has this growing expectation of God's rule being realized. The hope of people living under the power of sin is, is that God's care will be realized in a coming kingdom. And that's something that is building throughout the Old Testament. But it's when we come to the New Testament that we begin to see this all take shape. You think of John the Baptist. He announces the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus himself makes that known as well. When Jesus casts out uh, a demon, he says, if I cast out a demon, then it is a sign that the kingdom of God is, um, is, is amongst you, that the kingdom of God has come upon them. And so the power of God's grace 
his triumph over the kingdom of darkness was being shown in that deliverance from a demon possession. Jesus was showing the the triumph of God's kingdom over the kingdom of Satan. But it's ultimately at the cross where we see uh, the kingdom of God uh, established in uh, its power in a fuller sense. Christ's death on the cross broke the power of sin and the grace of God is manifested in a clearer way. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Did you catch how Paul describes the gospel? It's moving from one kingdom to another kingdom. It's being delivered from a kingdom that's crumbling, a kingdom that's doomed to destruction, a kingdom that is imploding and being brought into a state of a kingdom that is going to bring blessing and is unending. A kingdom that brings forgiveness of sins and that brings redemption. We're no longer enslaved. We are free in Christ. And so Paul celebrates the good news by describing it as the kingdom of God being realized in the Lord Jesus. Jesus himself talks about his own ministry in those words, doesn't he? He describes the kingdom of God like a treasure hidden in the field. If someone finds a treasure, they're willing to to sell all that they have in order to get that treasure. And Jesus says, in the same way, The kingdom of God is to be treasured and cherished above all else. Why? Because the kingdom of God, because Christ is the source of all blessings. Because Christ is all that we need. And he is to be cherished above all else. Because only he can satisfy our longings, but also our needs before God. And so Jesus uh, presses that point. But that should make us ask the question, what is it that we treasure? What is it that we cherish most in life? Are we concerned and longing for God's rule to be realized? Here, Jesus is praying, your kingdom come, because that's what I desire most. That's, That's ultimately the longings being satisfied, is when God's rule is over all that God's care is manifested in its fullness. But why would Jesus tell his disciples to pray these words? Jesus has come. Jesus has just said, if I'm doing these miracles and the kingdom of God is upon you. So why is he telling his disciples to pray your kingdom come? It's because the kingdom of God has not come in its fullness. It's because Jesus is saying that there is more for uh, the kingdom of God to be realized. He's asking for God's gracious work to be realized both in in its extent and in terms of degree. Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray for the kingdom of God to be realized in a place where it hasn't been realized up to this point. Where there's a king, a kingdom comes when it is realized in a place where the king was not formally recognized. In other words, in terms of regeneration, when those who were living 
without reference to the lordship of Jesus, come to yield gladly to Christ's authority and care over them. It is a work of the Spirit when they yield themselves in obedience to the reign of Christ. When the Spirit causes those who are living in darkness to now to delight in the grace of God in truth in Jesus. When they see sin as sin and they want to submit uh, to the reign of Christ. And so we have to ask, have we come uh, to be part of that kingdom? Have you been transformed by the work of the Spirit? Are you part of God's kingdom this evening? How do I know? Do you want Christ's will to be done? Do you want to yield yourself to the lordship and authority of Jesus? Do you trust Christ's reign in your life? Or are you still living, pushing back, not trusting Christ over all, not wanting God's purposes to be realized? It's a work of the spirit when a person can find their hope and their security in Christ and says, I want Christ over all, because that's what I'm looking to for my hope and for my confidence. Those who have come to enter Christ's kingdom then will pray for God's kingdom to be realized in the lives of others, that others will come to be converted, to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. They will pray these words, but they will actively want to see God's kingdom increase in their own situation. We don't just say these words but we live in light of those words. And so we look to round at those around us and we want them to know what we have come to profess to know, what we have come to treasure in the Lord Jesus. If you are a Christian this evening, then your concern should be that Christ would reign in the hearts of others. If you are a professing Christian this evening and you have children, then you should want your children to profess Christ themselves then you should want to tell them that Jesus is Lord. You should want to tell them that the king is good. You should want them to find their refuge and their security in this king because we must all give an account before God. We don't become passive and say that's the church's job or I'll just let them figure it out on their own. No, we say your kingdom come and I want others in that kingdom because it's good because they need to be safe because there is another kingdom that is going to crumble and if they're not part of Christ's kingdom then they're still under condemnation for their sin and so if we are wanting Christ's kingdom to come then we're going to live consistent with that fathers and mothers will speak to their children about the Lord Jesus we will want others to come to know Christ uh, themselves, and we will pray for Christ's kingdom uh, even broader, more universally. We will pray that from sea to sea, to the ends of the earth, that Christ would be reigned uh, and would be recognized as Lord. Not only are we praying for individuals, but we can be praying for the spread of the gospel in places where it has not uh, penetrated, where the darkness would be dispelled, and those who are living without God's grace would come to believe. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, Christians are praying for the downfall of anything that would set itself up in the name of Christ, against the name of Christ, in the place of Christ. 
because there is no other source of security. That we believe that it is only in Christ that one can find refuge. It is only under the Lord Jesus that one can be delivered from their sins. And so we are asking that God would make Christ reign in the lives and in the hearts of those who are giving their allegiance elsewhere, that they would come to know the truth. So it involves conversion. But we are also praying your kingdom come in terms of sanctification. We are praying that Christ's rule would increasingly take hold in the lives of believers. Thomas Hooker gives a helpful analogy of this. You remember when we were going through the book of Samuel. You remember there was a time period when Saul had died. But there was the house, the lineage of Saul. And the house and lineage of Saul wanted to maintain control and power. But it tells us in the early chapters of 2 Samuel that there was also now the line of David. David's house was also beginning to grow in its loyalty, that people were giving their allegiance to David. And in 2 Samuel 3, it tells us that there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And the house of David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. What does it mean to say that David's kingdom came? It means that Saul's kingdom was crumbling. It was defeating itself. That David's kingdom emerged because Saul's kingdom was passing away. And that becomes a picture and can be a picture even in the Christian's life. That when we pray your kingdom come, we are asking that old loyalties to sin would lose their stronghold. We are asking that sin would be put to death, that we would not give our allegiance to it, but that we would, as Paul says, put to death the deeds of the body, that we would be consecrating ourselves, knowing that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus's word is trustworthy, that Jesus's will is right, that we would be more connected and committed to Christ, then we are allured and tempted by sin. And that only happens when we are more satisfied with Christ than we are being led along by the messages of an ulterior kingdom that tell us that our true happiness, our true refuge, our true strength is found in these other things. That we are ultimately trusting Christ in every other aspect of our life. We begin to trust him with our finances. We begin to trust him in our life choices. We begin to trust him with what we are doing uh, with our spare time. We are trusting him in all these areas. Because we are saying that there is not a part of my life that does not come under the authority of Christ. That Christ owns all of my life. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, we're saying that more and more may your reign be realized in my life. Is that what you want yourself? Do you want Christ, his authority, his direction, his will to be realized in the way that you're living your life? It also means that we should be praying for the upbuilding of the church. 
that the church would be, would be brought increasingly under the rule of Christ and so fulfill her calling to teach the nations about Christ. We are to be concerned not only about our own personal health and well-being, but also about the people of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can be praying for the ministry of the word. We can be praying for the care of the elders. We can be praying for the witness of the saints. We're concerned not just about ourselves, but we see the people of God and we're concerned about the strength and the well-being of Christ's church. We want Christ's kingdom to come into shape and form, that it would become more attractive, that people would see the lordship of Christ as something desirable so that they too would come to yield to Christ. And so we see this concept of the kingdom of God, the care of God delivering people from their sin and slavery and dominion to it. We see the coming of the kingdom of God in the, the work of the Lord Jesus, but also by the work of the Holy Spirit, regenerating sinners, but also sanctifying people so that they more and more delight in Christ. But then we also pray this prayer in view of the consummation. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray this prayer because one day the kingdom of God will be fully realized. When the full number of God's people are brought in, Jesus teaches us not only to live in the present, but in light of what is to come. Not only are we to be centered on God's name, but we are to be centered on God's purpose. And there is a day coming when Christ will return, and so we can have reason to hope. Why should you pray for God's kingdom to come? Paul summarizes it well in Romans when he says that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. The kingdom of God consists of righteousness because it is the righteousness of God towards the ungodly, giving them approval and acceptance before God. The kingdom of God consists in peace because through the death of the Lord Jesus, we can have peace with God. Not only do we have pardon for our sins, but we have peace and now access before his throne of grace. But from that flows out joy, that the blessings of God are enjoyed because of God's rule in Jesus Christ. And so what is so desirable about the kingdom of God is, is that the longings that we hold of being accepted, of being approved, of being commended, are realized in and through this king. The care of God is realized through the suffering Messiah, who is now exalted as the king over all things. And that through him, God's purposes are realized. But the hope of righteousness and peace will someday be established that the best is yet to come and so the believer has a reason to hope not to simply live for the now but to look with one eye forward on what is to come and so as as uh, jesus teaches us here about the kingdom of god he is teaching us to discover god's grace in jesus and to desire that above all else when you think about the rule of Christ, does it 
make you recoil because it's rule, authority, governance? Or do you see the king as not only worthy of your loyalty, but also as one who is fittingly to be given that, knowing that his rule is for our good? That's what Jesus is teaching. Through Jesus, we come to know God. Through Jesus, we come to see God's purpose. And we yield to it. Because it brings peace with God. And it brings the restoration of all things, as we were looking at this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about uh, this prayer that it would shape and mold us, that we would learn what it is that we should be praying for. Because so often uh, we uh, stumble and uh, struggle even to know what to say. But we pray, Lord, that you would center our thoughts, that you would form our hearts, and that you would help us ultimately to yield uh, to the governance and the care uh, and the purposes of our God in uh, the Lord Jesus. So, Lord, we ask that as we uh, think about your uh, purposes in Christ, may we be given true wisdom that we might kiss the Son, that we might find our refuge and our blessing in him. Go before us in Jesus' name.